And I quote, I realized that all of these preoccupations, the bike, the meeting, the helicopter ride, were just ways of avoiding having to look at the biggest problem. They were just shiny objects. I was allowing myself to be distracted by them instead of facing my fears. I did this often in my life. I allowed small worries to distract me from the things that really mattered. I would play small, letting distractions prevent me from moving forward and achieving success. Focusing on what really matters takes courage and it takes risks. I told myself right then and there, if I lived, I would make my life different. By letting go of my strong need to maintain a sense of control, I've realized that I actually have far more control over the way I live my life than I ever understood before. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my host this evening is Michael O'Brien, founder and chief executive officer of an organization called Peloton Coaching and Consulting. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I've been looking forward to this all day long. Can you describe to our listeners what it is they just heard? Well, they heard a passage from my book and my story as I was waiting for the helicopter to take me to the trauma center, the only trauma one center in the state of New Mexico. They were about to try to save my life. All right. That's a good, good opening, Michael. Let's hold that for just a second. We're going to come back to that. Before we get to that particular event, which was the basis of my quote that I pulled out of your wonderful book called Shift, give us your background. Where did you come from and what led you ultimately to those mountains of New Mexico and the event that we're going to speak about? Well, I grew up in beautiful Rochester, New York, the true upstate for all of us New Yorkers that look at Manhattan as the <laughs> epicenter of New York. Right. So I grew up in Rochester, went to school in Virginia, worked my way to DC, and then the job took me up to New Jersey in the metropolitan New York area. Started off just in sales, got into a pharmaceutical industry, and my pharmaceutical company, which is based, which was based in New Jersey, took us out to New Mexico for an offsite. And I was pretty much a typical guy. I thought I was following life script to the T. Go to work hard in high school, go to college, get a gig, find someone, marry the someone, start to have a family, climb the corporate ladder. And I hopped on my hamster wheel because that's what I thought you had to do to create the life that you wanted to have, the life I thought society wanted me to have. And so up until that point, going to New Mexico, I didn't really live my life with a lot of awareness. I did live my life with a lot of hustle a lot to do in order to have more things in my life. The things I thought were important, all the material possessions that so many today still chase after. Those shiny objects. Absolutely, that distract and are really external merit badges. Yet what you were describing is you were living the corporate life, providing for your family, wife and two children, understood, which is what we do, commuting into the city or living in northern New Jersey at the time? Living in northern New Jersey, commuting to another place in northern New Jersey, just working a whole bunch of hours, right? trying to be the patriarch, trying to be the leader, right? thinking I had to have all the answers because I had those two roles. So I was playing Superman at work and Superman at home, and I didn't want to show my stress to anyone. 
I didn't want to talk about that, so I poured it inside and trust tried to repress it. I had no idea how to release it. Yep, Michael, on a fateful day in July of 2001, you asked yourself a question. Is this what it feels like to die? Paint that scene for our listeners. Why did you ask that question and what was happening at that moment? Well, at that moment, I had just been hit by a Ford Explorer who crossed the center line, was traveling 40 miles an hour when I was on an early morning bike ride. I thought I was the smartest guy at the meeting. I was going to avoid the hotel gym, get some exercise. And I came around a bend, and it was right there, coming right at me, and I thought, surely he sees me, he'll move. Surely he'll see me, he'll move. And he never moved. And I remember the sound of me hitting the grill into the windshield, the screech of his brakes. I lost consciousness. The EMTs were around me when I regained consciousness. And I just remember trying to will myself not to fall asleep because I thought if I fell asleep, I would lose control over the situation, as crazy as that sounds. But then in a moment, while they were doing their work, I wondered, like, yeah, is this what it feels like to die? Because this didn't follow the script. The script I was following since college, the script that people promised me would give me what I wanted. You never expected in the script that you'd be medevaced to a medical center. And I think you, you, you spoke in the book, Michael, that at the time that you were medevaced into this hospital, there was a particular surgeon who was on call that day that happened to be someone at the top of his field. Was that heaven sent, fatalistic? All that. All that. He was the orthopedic surgeon for the University of New Mexico, so he was an expert orthopedic surgeon in New Mexico because the University of New Mexico is only trauma one center. If you're a surgeon, you're also a trauma surgeon. Right. And he was just enough of a maverick, enough of a cowboy to fight for me that day. Well, in retrospect, you also noted that potentially if another physician had been on call, you would have lost one of your legs. Oh, absolutely. I went to a whole bunch of other orthopedic experts across this nation to get second and third opinions about my health status so I could regain enough function. They all told me, if you came into our hospital, our clinic with your injury, we would have amputated your left leg above the knee just to save your life. The surgeon you had worked a miracle on you. And that never appeared on any script that you would have written. No way. Like, I was writing it from that point on, from the time that truck hit me, I was writing a new script. Okay. Before we talk about that new script and your change of outlook, walk us through the recovery. What was it like? How long did it take? And what implications did it have on family and career? Oh, a whole bunch. At first, you know, I made that promise to myself once I got on the medevac, Michael, if you live, you're going to stop chasing happiness. Life is going to be different what you wrote, what you read in the beginning. Well, when I came out of the ICU, the doctor started painting a picture of a lifetime of uh, not independence, dependency, more surgery, pain and suffering. And I went dark, Chuck, very quickly. I thought life was so unfair. I learned about the driver, he had a revoked license. He shouldn't have been driving that day. So in the whole spirit that we go where our eyes go, I went to a deep, dark place, bitter, angry, revengeful, and I stayed there, and I tried to, again, put on the happy face, the happy front, that things are going to be great. I was going to be optimistic, right? I was doing it again, avoiding the real core issue. But when the hospital got dark after hosp visiting hours were over, 
I just cried myself to sleep almost every night, wondering why do bad things happen to good people? So I stayed in that funk until I realized, well, if you're going to get your body right, you have to get your mind right first. And when I finally came back to New Jersey, I started working on that. I had to get my mindset right. I had to start focusing in on what I still had, what I still could do in order to get healthier. Now, I'm here, we're chatting, but my Peloton, as I like to call it, my tribe, is the only reason I'm here. Let me hold yeah. off for just a second because you're introducing a metaphor that I think is a very powerful one. Sure. As a biker, the title of your book is Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows, Winning at Work and in Life. And as bikers, you compete and there are winners. But it's interesting how you talked about your tribe and the Peloton. And for those that may not know the bike racing community, describe the concept of the Peloton and how that relates to your metaphor. Sure. Well, some of your listeners might know the word Peloton from Peloton spin bikes. Hmm? And so they use the same word as their metaphor. But I would point people to the Tour de France. All those cyclists that are racing their bikes through the Alps of France, they're called the Peloton. And they need trust and collaboration and teamwork to go down the road as safe and as fast as possible. So I had a moment in my recovery where I looked at my whole medical team, different departments, different skill. And I was like, they're like my medical Peloton. They're all helping Mm -hmm. me get better, regain my health. So from that point on, my metaphor for tribes or networks is who's in your Peloton? Who are you riding with in life? Because life's not a solo project. You need Uh, people around you. I love that. You also have in your book, and it occurred many times about the metaphor of shift. Talk about on a bicycle the importance of the shift and how that relates to the change in your outlook and how you shifted your life. Absolutely. For me, it's about shifting perspectives as we look at life, look at career. So any bicycle, especially nowadays, has multiple gears, which helps us go up the hills, go down the hills, you know, the turns, the twists. So the more gears we have, the more chances that we can just make subtle changes to our gearing, which makes pedaling easier. We can go faster. We can conserve energy. And I think it's the same in life, that when we shift our perspective, when we have some space, some openness to look at things maybe a little bit differently than how we're looking at them right now, we may see a different meaning. We might come up with a different label. We can be empathetic because we can perhaps see the other person's perspective, which, heck, we need a lot of that in today's society. So for me, shifting is about that perspective shift, but it can also mean shifts in life, shift in career, shift in family. And I think we're shifting all the time. You know, change is inevitable, I like to think. Progress is really a choice, though. Things are going to change, but... Are we going to make progress or not? That's really part of our agency as human beings. I I want to examine one thing also that really spoke to me in the book. Your recovery, if I remember, was approximately 13 months. Now, there may have been more to it, but the time you got out of the hospital, you were home and you were feeling better. You talked about when you were in the hospital, you noticed the difference in the people that had a pessimistic mindset and those that had an optimistic mindset. Now, all along, you were describing feeling sorry for yourself, that self-pity, that self-loathing was taking over you, and all of a sudden, something began to shift. Can you describe your observation of the patients that got better and why they got better, which had nothing to do with the body? 
Yeah, I believe there's a huge mind-body connection. Now, growing up, I was always an athlete. So we knew that mindset mattered when it came to sports. But I didn't really make the correlation to mindset and health. And so the people who were getting better had a more abundant or optimistic, to put it plainly, way of looking at their injury and their health going forward. Now, I had a phony optimism. On the surface, I was like, yes, this is great. We're going to recover. But deep down inside, I was pessimistic. I was worried. I was fearful. And I knew this, that going back to my athletic background, in order for my body to heal, I first had to heal my mind. And I think we tend to forget that, especially given the pace of life today, that the mindset, what we tell ourselves, what we believe, can drive how we feel. And how we feel, those emotions drive our actions. So I knew in that moment, going back again to my athletic background, that I first had to shift my mindset in order to make my body healthier. You're listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is Michael O'Brien. Michael is an executive coach for his company called Peloton Coaching and Consulting and author of a few books. One of them called is My Last Bad Day. But the book that I'm referring to that I used for research for this particular show is called Shift, Creator, Creating Better Tomorrows, Winning at Work in Life. And one of the shifts you described, Michael, in addition to the optimistic mindset, you spoke very clearly and precisely about the change in mindset from victim to victor. Explain what you were thinking and what you want our audience to know about this. Well, sure. So now when I think of that shift from victim to victor, I cringe a little bit because I was really looking for another V word. Mm-hmm. So it could have been Viking <laughs> or victory or what have you, but I really did feel sorry for myself. I was in this victim mindset. And you know what, Chuck? So many people validated it. When I had visitors, they're like, poor you. And I was like, yes, poor me. And the sympathy felt good, but it didn't propel me to do any more action. I just sort of sat in my pity. So I knew that I had to, again, shift my mindset to get better. And one mentor shared with me, he said, Michael, every event in your life is neutral until you label it. And I was like, excuse me? And he goes, every event is neutral until you label it. Basically, he told me, nothing has meaning until you give it meaning. So you can give this accident meaning that you're a victim, and this is all bad things that have happened to you, or you can give it a completely different label. You have that choice. Hmm. You can choose to use this accident to create a better version of who you want to be. You can use this accident to rise up and inspire others to rise up when they have a challenge. You can label it, Michael, any way you want it to. This can have any meaning you want to give it. You have choice. And in that moment, Chuck, I, I was like, really? Is this like a Jedi <laughs> mind <Come trick?"> on. <laughs> Because I was not necessarily fully open to hearing his message. But when you're in the hospital, you have a lot of time to think. He left, and I thought. And I realized he was correct, that really everything does have a chance to, we get to put meaning on it. Everything's neutral until we label it. And I've become more attentive since that moment on the things that happen to me and the label I choose to give things. And that helps me shift my perspective. Instead of going negative, I can look at even some of the positive in our challenges. And that helps me move forward faster. 
In mountaineering, we talk about your attitude often determines your altitude. But what you're talking about, Michael, is the attitude you bring not just to the world that is looking at you, but how you think about yourself. That's what you're describing is you define the attitude because that defines the labels. Absolutely. I think you'll appreciate this, Chuck, in the work that you do. Conversation like we're having here is a connector. It's a thread that brings us all together wherever we may be living. And that's, I think, one of the great things about social media. It connects us. But when we look at conversation, the most important conversation that we have every day, multiple times a day, is the conversation that we have with ourselves. It's a relationship that we have with ourselves. If that's not healthy, if that's not loving, if that's not positive, even when we have challenge, it's hard to have the right type of conversation with other people. It's hard to have those type of quality relationships to build your Peloton using my, my vernacular. So for me, what I learned through my recovery is to have a better relationship with me to start. Indeed. You know, sometimes I, I, in my practice, particularly, I do a lot of emotional intelligence work with, with many of my clients. And some of them relate to me that they, don't, they haven't found love. And while I don't want to cast dispersions on anyone particular, oftentimes my observation is they don't love themselves. And how can you love someone or something else if you don't love yourself and or if you can't love something back. That came through in shift to me because I felt your book was a love story. Oh, it is. Yeah. I didn't tell my wife this when I set out to write it, but it was part I wanted to express how I felt about myself, but also it was a love story for her, to her. It, because... you, you, it was an homage to your wife, your children. I also want to explore something that we had spoken in advance of this show about the people in the Peloton, that there were three kinds of people as you were in your recovery. Within your group, talk about those, you find out who your friends are. Explain what happened in the depth of your despair in that recovery because I think this is a good lesson in human nature. Some of the things that surprise us. Explain those three categories of people at that time. Sure. This was a very powerful lesson for me as just a human being. There were people, Chuck, that I thought were going to show up and did. No surprise. It was part of the script. There were people who I thought were going to show up at my lowest point in my life who didn't. And then there was a third group, people I didn't expect to show up, but did in magical ways. And that second group, the people who I thought were going to show up, but didn't, at first, I was so mad at them. I was so angry at them. I thought, I'm at my low point, and you can't show up. You can't call. And that anger stayed with me for a while. And as you know, reading through the book, there's also a theme of forgiveness. And I realized that in order for me to move forward, I had to let that go. And I also had an appreciation that maybe they just didn't know what to say. Sometimes when we see those closest to us in pain, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. So instead of showing up and saying, I don't know, we stay away because we're uncomfortable. Well, it's interesting. Your perspective shifted in retrospect. Absolutely. At the time, I was an angry bear. (laughs) I was not happy with them. Now, the people that I didn't expect to show up, um, and did 
well, those were wonderful surprises. Like those, those are the type of people that give you faith in humanity. That right. when we have a crisis, strangers come to your aid. I think that's what makes our country a great country. And I take it they came to the aid of your loved ones. Not, because not, not just you. When those things occur and people deliver the unexpected, they didn't even have to do anything for you. No. They did it for your family. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted them really to do things for my wife and my daughters. Right. Again, patriarch of the family. I was the provider. So don't leave me be. I don't, I don't need any help. I've worked on that piece. But help my wife. Help my daughters. Because what happened to me happened to them. And that's the thing about energy and about when something unfortunate happens. It doesn't just happen to the person that it happens to. It happens to their whole peloton. That emotion travels. And so I firmly believe now that when you help one person anywhere, you help people everywhere. Yeah, There's the a ripple, ripple effect that happens when we are in service to other people and we help them up with a hand up we can have a beautiful cascade effect that slowly but surely changes our communities. You know, Michael, that is such a common thread among in this show in, in a climb to the top stories of transformation. I, I, although I use the mountaineering metaphor in the law of reciprocity, we define that a mountaineering that if you want to get to the top, help others get to, don't worry about yourself, help them and they help you. And we may use different words for that, whether it's the mountain team or the Peloton, that definitely was core to your story. And in addition to the book, Michael, you delivered a wonderful TED Talk. Talk to us about how that came and what was the message, because we're going to leave the listeners with some key takeaways. So that came about through a past relationship in my corporate days. Uh, the AV team was doing a meeting for another company, and they wanted to do a TEDx, a private label TEDx. Yeah. And they asked me to share my story. And so the idea worth spreading, that's the whole TED concept, is we go where our eyes go. Right. So if you point your eyes towards negativity, you'll find more negativity in your life. That's it's, good to know as a biker. Yes, because <laughs> we get around turns by pointing our eyes in the direction that we wish to turn the bike. If we're looking straight ahead at the tree, we might hit the tree. So if we look for things that are abundant, that are opportunities, we tend to find more of that in our lives. So I shared a few, few stories from my recovery and how leaders had pushed me to get back on the bike, all in a spirit that sometimes we can see where we want to go, but sometimes we need a mentor to help us point our eyes in the right direction. I want to close with a couple things. Talk about that in the title of your book, My Last Bad Day. Sure. Interesting title. Yes. How'd well, you come with that? Well, when I had my big aha that I was going to get my mind right to get my body right, I made a determination that I could label that day of my accident in any way I wanted to. And I labeled it as my last bad day. I made a determination that that was going to be my last bad day ever. <laughs> that, you haven't had a bad day since. No. And but the thing I want to share with your listeners, I've had tough moments. I've had sad days. I've had challenging days. I've had bad moments. But what I learned along the way is I never want a bad moment to get any more fuel than it deserves. Because so often people have a bad moment at work at 3 p.m. on a Friday, and it ruins their whole weekend. And it doesn't have to. Or that rough commute, as we know, in New York City, and it, we, we get into a stink for the first part of the morning. It doesn't have to be that way. They can be moments. And so what I learned along the way is 
the ability to, yes, appreciate that moment, that bad moment that may be a great challenge, and how to move away from that onto the things that really fuel us, that it's our goodness. So those bad moments don't have so much intensity and they don't last as long. And so, yeah, so my last bad day is July 11, 2001. Haven't had a bad day since. I also use it now as that day where you decide you're gonna live life differently. Not the day where you have unicorns and rainbows and, and endless supply of Skittles, but it's that day where you said, you know what, today's the day. I'm gonna write a new script. Yeah, in our time remaining, Michael, uh, what we do on this show is we pose a question that is the takeaway for our audience. And what do we want our listeners to think? What do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to do? And I'd like to, to frame it in such a way that not everybody's going to hit by a truck at 40 miles an hour, but that doesn't mean that they can't shift. So let's examine that. What do you want our listeners to think? That they're not alone, that they have people around them that are willing to support them. What do you want them to feel? I want them to feel joy because I think happiness is something we feel by ourselves, but joy is something that we feel when we're around others. And what do you want them to do? I want them to breathe more. I learned that through my recovery that when we get stressed, the best thing we can connect with is our breath to slow everything down so we can go forward better and hopefully better together. Well, whether it's yoga, biking, mountaineering, that is such a valuable lesson. You have listened to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening was Michael O'Brien, author of Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows, Winning at Work and in Life. Michael, it was an honor, and it was a pleasure. And thank you for coming into the studios of Talk Radio 77 WABC. Thanks, Chuck. Pleasure. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.